the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it answers that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. It's interesting that this great catechism right in the beginning includes the Christian's assurance. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And the framers of the catechism knew the importance of assurance to the Christian life. And when you think about it, we need assurance because we live in an ever-changing world. What is up today might be down tomorrow. We continue to fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil, and life in this world is always shifting. Not only is the world always shifting around us, but in recent years it seems that the church culture that we inhabit seems very unstable. High-profile leaders are leaving the faith. We had never heard of the word deconstruction until a few years ago, and now it's a buzzword every time you get on Facebook from what I hear. In some cases, people we thought we could trust are no longer trustworthy when it comes to their teaching of the Bible. But we know that the situation we're in, the world in which we live, it's not unique to us. After all, Solomon said, nothing is new under the sun. And listen to what one commentator wrote in 1964. The mid-20th century is an epoch of fundamental insecurity. He goes on to write, many Christians are filled with uncertainty and confusion. And if the commentator were still alive, he would not be surprised to know that his statement is just as true in 2022 as it was in 1964. So if this is the case, and it is the case, where can a Christian find assurance in a world that is not reassuring? Well, the Christians that the Apostle John wrote 1 John to were asking a similar question. They had been assaulted by a false teaching that centered on the person and work of Christ. And according to this false teaching, Jesus was uh, not who he said he was. He did not do what we thought he did. And the Apostles' witness about Christ was wrong. And false teaching is bad in and of itself, but when the false teaching comes from those that you are closest to, it's even harder. And mercifully for the church, the false teachers and those who held it had left. We read in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, they left, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So they left. But those who remain lacked assurance. 
Keep in mind, false teaching always, always, always leaves devastation in its wake. And John's reason for writing this letter is found in chapter 5, verse 13. The Apostle John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John wants his readers to know that they have eternal life. He wants them to be certain. And the Apostle John, he writes the whole letter from the, uh, the assumption that assurance is a normal, healthy experience of the Christian life. And this letter is really a masterful pastoral polemic driven by a pastor's heart. So everything John says throughout this short, impactful letter hangs on this thought from chapter 5, verse 13. Some will find this hard to believe, but uh, one summer when I was on break from Bible college, I worked for Ball Homes. Very surprising, I know. You can ask my brother and father as I helped them put together pool furniture yesterday and my main job was just hold this piece. <laughs> but about the only thing I remember from working there is that when you're going to build something using concrete, you use something called rebar. Is that right, Jeff? I did Google this to make sure I remember. But rebar is something you put in the concrete and it keeps it strong, it keeps it from cracking, it supports it. Well, this is how verse 13 of chapter 5 is working for the first letter here of John. It's the rebar of the book. It keeps it from cracking. It is what holds the book together. Because the Apostle John, he's going to say some very hard things, some very candid things. And one reason I love the Apostle John, he's very black and white. There's no gray area. You don't have to say, hmm, wonder what John meant there. No, he just, he's much like our John. He's just very black and white and... It is what it is. But this thought in chapter 5, verse 13, is what holds the book together. John wants his readers who have believed in the name of the Son of God to know, to know that they have eternal life. So this means that for the Christian, assurance is possible if we are looking for it in the right places. And throughout the letter which we'll spend a few weeks on unless our pastor jumps the queue, as he says. This is the danger of preaching on the tail end of the break, John. You've got to learn this. You may not get, you may not get to finish. Throughout the letter of 1 John, John brings out two very important but different sides to assurance. There is an objective assurance and there is a subjective assurance and the subjective is grounded in the objective. John Stott put it this way, the Christian certainty is twofold. One, objective, that is that the Christian religion is true and subjective, that he himself has been born of God and possesses eternal life. Both are expounded by John, who takes it for granted that this double assurance is right and healthy in all Christian people. Let me just take a moment to... Because I've already said twice that assurance is normal and it's healthy, but experience would bear out that it's not always there. All right? Normal and healthy does not mean that it's always. All right? 
If you never experience assurance, we'll examine 1 John in the coming weeks, and perhaps you will see why. But I did want to address that briefly, as we'll cover that more throughout the coming weeks. But the focus of the first four verses of the book is on the objective side of assurance. And in this passage, there are four realities that are essential to objective Christian assurance, which I'll summarize through four words. The first of which is incarnation. Incarnation. John's letter and gospel begin in a pretty similar way. Here we read that which was from the beginning. And you remember that John begins his gospel with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That which was from the beginning, in the beginning. And both verses, both phrases, lead to teaching about Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He was with God, and He was God. And the subject that John is writing about does not appear until the end of the verse in that phrase concerning the Word of life. And mainly, as you look at verse 2, he says the life was made manifest. He is mainly concerned with the life. So the, the life, Jesus, came from heaven to earth. The eternal one entered time. And this is the life about which John says, We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and touched with our hands. So these first two verses are in some ways a summary statement of the incarnation of Christ. It's very similar to John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is saying that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, actually came from heaven to earth. He was a real person. He was not a deified body. He was not a spirit. He came as truly God and truly man. And this is the incarnation. And if you think about it, if the incarnation did not happen, then neither can assurance. If Jesus didn't come, what do you have to be assured of? And the false teaching that ravaged these believers denied that Jesus came in the flesh. In chapter 4, we read, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This, that confession that Jesus has not come in the flesh, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the incarnation of Christ is essential to the Christian faith. To say that the Incarnation did not happen is to deny the Christian faith and to live without hope. And the Apostle Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15 could be used here. If the Incarnation did not happen, then we of all people are most to be pitied. I just think for a moment... What would not have happened if the incarnation of Christ had not happened? Let's just go back to the catechism answer. Without the incarnation, Christ would not have fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood. Without the incarnation, Christ would not have set you free from the tyranny of the devil. 
Without the incarnation, Christ would not be watching over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. If the incarnation had not happened, there is no way that all things must work together for your salvation. Without the incarnation, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, would not assure you of eternal life and make you wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So Christ taking on of our flesh is essential to the Christian faith, which means it is essential to Christian assurance. But this raises a question which is answered by the second reality. How do you know the incarnation happened? The second word is history. History. We can be confident that the incarnation happened because we have eyewitness testimony about it. This is what John conveys by using we, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Then you go to verse 2, we have seen it and testified to it. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard. Many of you know that I, I love history and I especially love uh, the Civil War era. I recently read a biography about Robert E. Lee written by Alan Gelzo, who is a Reformed Christian historian. And the biography was fascinating. Robert E. Lee's a bit of an enigma. But one reason it was fascinating was because the author went back to the original sources. He used letters from and to Robert E. Lee. He cited general orders from the Civil War that had been preserved from that time in our country's history. He used newspaper articles from archives that he had available to him. So I trusted his writing because this was not his opinion about Robert E. Lee, but a fascinating retelling of the eyewitness testimony. Likewise, we can trust what John is writing here, not be only because he was an eyewitness, but so were the other apostles. Here we have an original source. And if this was only John's retelling without the witness of the other apostles, we could be a little concerned. But that's not the case, is it? John and the other apostles are those who heard, saw, looked, looked upon, and touched Christ. And John wants to make sure his readers understand that they really heard, they really saw. And not only was John an eyewitness, but Christ was manifested to him. Look at the end of verse 2. The eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. God worked through these real events in such a way to confirm the truth that was happening before the apostles' eyes. The God who governs history sent his Son into history and revealed to the apostles the reality of what was happening before their eyes. And the false teaching that John is writing against, it was really it's a, a philosophical way of thinking. The false teacher said Christ was for the elite. Christ was only for those who were considered enlightened. They believed Jesus was not the Christ, but merely appeared to be. And some commentators even believe that they may have thought Jesus was not even a real human. But their testimony, the false teacher's testimony, cannot be trusted because they did not hear, they did not see, they did not look upon, they did not touch. John and the other apostles did. 
The false teacher's testimony cannot be trusted because they were not eyewitnesses to the incarnation, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And John and the other apostles were eyewitnesses concerning the word of life. The two words that John uses in verse 2, testify and proclaim, reinforce the apostolic eyewitness testimony. That word testify means that they have the authority of an eyewitness. So John is not testifying to something he read somewhere. He was there. And the meaning behind proclaim is that John and the apostles were commissioned to tell what they witnessed. In other words, they don't proclaim, they don't testify on their own authority, but on the authority of someone else, namely Christ himself. So John's saying, look, I saw this and I'm proclaiming it. I saw Christ. I'm proclaiming it because Christ told me to. He told me to go tell this. Tell what you've seen. Tell what you've heard. Tell what you touched. So John and the other apostles aren't rogue. Like, hey, I think this might catch fire. What do you think, boys? Want to go tell about this? No. Jesus said, go tell. On my authority, go and proclaim me. Well, why does this matter for assurance, right? Why does this historical nature of the Christian faith matter for assurance? Well, first, as Ian Hamilton wrote, the historical facts, John is establishing the historical facts and reality of the gospel. The verbs John uses are calculated to make one great point. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a speculation or an ideal or an opinion. It is a fact. The Christian faith is not a philosophical statement. It is based on historical realities. From the events of the Old Testament to the events of the New Testament, we see God acting in history to keep His promises. And as Christians, we don't merely argue that the gospel is true because it's true, although it is true. Figure that out later. We argue that the gospel is true because it really happened. It really happened. The incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ were real events witnessed by real people in real time. So assurance is not possible within the Christian faith if it is a philosophical speculation, a tentative suggestion, or a modest contribution to religious thought. Christianity is a dogmatic declaration that these things happened and they are true. And because of this, we can echo these words from Lloyd-Jones. He wrote in his commentary on 1 John, I thank God that I based my proposition upon certain facts in history. The Christian position is that we accept and believe this testimony. These things here reported have happened. So you see why we're saying that this assurance is objective. It's not about a subjective interpretation of what happened. It is an objective reporting of what did happen. Does that make sense? A second reason that this historical eyewitness testimony is important for assurance is because the person and work of Christ are at stake. John Stott, once again, he writes, It is impossible to distinguish between Jesus and the Christ, the historical and the eternal. They are the same person, God and man. 
there is a theological movement that's been afoot for a while now of the quest to find the historical Jesus. Well, I am here to announce this morning I can end their quest. Here. Game over. End of the adventure. Here's the historical Christ. He is found in Scripture. The scriptures reveal Christ to us. And this leads us to the most important word for this section, Christ. Christ. The first two words, incarnation and history, find their culmination in Christ. The incarnation and the historical eyewitness testimony are important because of who they are pointing to, Jesus Christ himself. If you only hear one thing I say throughout all of this, let this be it. Jesus is where we find assurance. Jesus. 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 Outside of him, there can be no assurance. He is the one who by his spirit assures us that we are children of God. Well, how do we see Jesus in this passage? Well, first, he is the one that was heard. He is the one that was seen. He is the one that was looked upon, and he is the one that was touched. Second, he is the content of the message John and the other apostles proclaimed. They're testifying concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And this word proclaim, in order to proclaim, they must have received a commission from him, that is Christ. So the verb proclaim directs the reader's attention to the source from which the message was derived, namely Christ himself. The apostles were not commissioned to simply relay their eyewitness experience. They were commissioned to proclaim the message of Christ. Indeed, they were proclaimed to proclaim Christ himself. Jesus is the life that was made manifest. And no other message on the planet can give life. Only the gospel. Well, why is that? Because of the Christ that the gospel proclaims. The Apostle John wrote in his gospel, In him Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. So there's no true life apart from Christ. And this is Jesus' testimony too, isn't it? John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. You, you can't give something you don't possess, right? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus is both the dispenser of eternal life, and he is the substance of eternal life. Jesus also said in John 10, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they, that is Christ's sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus gives life because he is life. Jesus is life. Therefore, he is your primary source for objective assurance. So, Christian, I ask you, if you lack assurance this morning, could it be that you're looking for it in all the wrong places? 
in your Bible reading, in your praying, in your church attendance, in your evangelism, in your reading of systematic theology, in your reading of good historical Christian biographies, reading of Christian living, reading of Sinclair Ferguson. Where are you looking for assurance? And if you lack it, I implore you to look to Christ. See Him in His incarnation, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His intercession, working for your good to the glory of the Father. Look to Jesus. He is life. He is assurance. I went through a phase in high school where I really liked Stephen Curtis Chapman. I don't know why. I really don't. But he had a song titled Jesus is Life back in 2001. Which tells you when I was in high school. So the chorus says, Jesus is life, the air I'm breathing, why my heart is beating, everything I'm needing, Jesus is life. And if I could add to his song, he's my assurance. Jesus is life. So, so far we've seen the three of the essential realities for objective assurance through three words, incarnation, history, and Christ. We have one final word, purpose. Purpose. In verses 3 and 4, John gives a twofold purpose for proclaiming and writing about assurance to these beleaguered believers. First, he says he proclaims what he does so that these believers might have fellowship with him and the other apostles. The statement seems a bit strange on its own, so we need to keep reading. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and, his little jab here at the false teachers, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John knew the incredible fellowship that he and the other apostles had with the Father and the Son, and he wanted these believers to have it too. He knew that apart from this fellowship, assurance would never be possible. John Owen's masterful book, Communion with God, is based on this one verse alone. It's important. The grand purpose of our salvation is that we might have fellowship with God. So John is inviting them into this fellowship. John wanted to include them in this wonderful fellowship while the false teachers were trying to exclude them from fellowship with God. So we notice that this fellowship is not about Jesus and you and no one else. John's inviting other people in. So we have fellowship with God and with our new family, the church. To contrast this to the, new, the, the false teachers who are trying to exclude people from fellowship with God. So listen, if you believe fellowship with God is about you and no one else, you are acting more like a false teacher than a Christian. Second, John proclaims and writes what he does, as he says, for our joy. Well, who's the our? Our joy. I believe he's still talking about the apostles. He's writing for the apostles' joy. But the same thinking carries over here. John and the other apostles experience joy when these believers have assurance 
through fellowship with God. And these believers, when they have fellowship with God, they too will have joy. I tend to agree with Lloyd-Jones as he makes it hard to disagree with him sometimes. That I don't think we necessarily have to choose between the apostles or the original recipients. I think it's both. Lloyd-Jones is helpful here again. There is no... There can be no true joy of salvation while there is a vagueness or an uncertainty or a lack of assurance with respect to what we have. In other words, if we don't know the objective. He goes on to write, Assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to the joy of salvation. So Christian, do you lack joy this morning? Could it be because you lack assurance? Where can you find rock-solid assurance that will lead to joy? Christ. He came from heaven and sought you. He came from heaven and saved you. He came from heaven to give you life. He came to heaven, and these are his words, to give you fullness of joy. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down because his work on your behalf was completed. He is praying for you right now, dear Christian. So look to Him. Continue to look to Him. Keep your spiritual eyes fixed on Him. Commune with Him. Fellowship with Him because of His grace and through His Word. And in Him you will find joyful assurance. But it's also possible that you are here this morning and you lack joy and assurance because you do not belong to Christ. You have no hope in life and death because you do not belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. And until you are Jesus' disciple, true joy, true assurance, true confidence are impossible. So come to Him. Come to Him. What does it look like to come to Jesus? It means believing that what He said and did is true. It means turning from your sin and yourself and turning to Him. It means forsaking everything and living for Him and Him alone. And Jesus brings you good news. When you do this, He will not turn you away. He will not turn His back on you. Come to me, I will give you rest. He will give you salvation. He will give you eternal life. He will give you fellowship with Him. He will give you assurance and He will give you fullness of joy in a world that robs you of joy. As the Sovereign Grace Kid song says, it's all about Jesus. Yep, it's all about Jesus.